What would you say is true freedom? True freedom. I think many today would say it's a freedom from restriction or from requirement, a freedom from any form of instruction telling you what to do or how to do it. But having recently been lost on both the precipice trail and the beehive, I am here to tell you that, my friends, is not freedom. You know, as my wife and I walk up the mountain, setting our minds on the course ahead, we're coming back down and suddenly we find ourselves off trail. And not just off trail, like lost, lost, not sure where the trail was. At that moment, we were literally free to do whatever and go wherever we wanted. There was no instruction, no one preventing us. We could do anything except the only thing we wanted to do. We were unable to actually do the very thing we most desired in our alleged state of freedom. But by the grace of God and the common grace of an invention of a GPS, we were able to pull it up on our phones. We found the trail, but it was at that moment that my wife and I actually felt free. We could now freely do the very thing we wanted to do, but were otherwise unable to do. Well, I think in many ways, this is some of the freedom Paul's going to unpack this morning. Throughout the letter of Galatians, he's been unpacking this idea of Christian freedom. Uh, that, that sinners, otherwise enslaved to their sin, become justified or declared righteous and freed from the condemnation of their sin by faith alone. And yet, it appears that some are abusing this idea of freedom by teaching that it actually means freedom from instruction. Freedom to live however you please as a license even to sin. Have you ever heard their argument before? Friends who say they can live however they want because Jesus will forgive me. And so there is no response to having been forgiven. No burden upon their life or call to how they should live. Many of my friends in college faithfully penciled into their calendars their monthly mass and they religiously attended confession because in doing so, they felt this freed them to live the rest of their month however they wanted. It was like their monthly spring cleaning. They could dirty their floor, drop their laundry wherever they wanted because they knew at the end of the month they would go back to the priest, they would confess their sins, and all would be made right again. They would just start afresh. Like, maybe this describes you this morning. Tempted to believe that God's grace to save you actually frees you now to live however you please. Like the whole idea of living holy sounds a bit too much like legalism. A bit like those people who are too concerned about how you dress or how you speak or that dating relationship you have. But friends, this is not the way Paul intended us to understand our freedom. In fact, what we'll see this morning is it's actually not freedom at all. So if you would, open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 5. We'll be in verses 13 to 26, and I think we'll see Paul unpack what true freedom really looks like. So follow along with me as I read verse 
13 to 26. Paul writes, You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say live by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Friends, Paul's main point throughout this whole section and what will be our first point this morning is that Christian freedom is not a freedom to sin. It is a freedom to serve. Point number one, freedom to serve, not to sin. Freedom to serve, not to sin. Now, apparently some folks in Galatia are saying kind of what we said earlier. You know, you, you can't tell me what to do. I'm free in Christ. I am free to the law. I don't need the law. I'm no legalist. I can live however I want. But Paul says true freedom is not a freedom to sin. It's a freedom from sin. A freedom from the the bondage of sin or its control over your life, the hold it has. It's a freedom that casts off the shackles that sin once was and enables you to begin living as God intended. Let me try to explain how some of this works by just summarizing what we saw there in verses 16 to 18. Okay, so Paul says each of us was infected at birth. At conception, each of us was infected with what he calls the sinful nature or what your translation may call the desires of the flesh. Now, sometimes this nature is a bit easier to see in children, not because it doesn't exist in all of us, but because they're just not as good at hiding it as adults are. You know, so when my daughter walks out wearing mom's lip gloss, which I told her she was not allowed to wear. And I look at her and I ask her. Did she touch mom's lip gloss? And with astonishment that I would be so bold as to even accuse her as lip gloss is smeared all over her face. My daughter says no. 
Now, I can assure you, I did not teach my daughter to lie. Nor did I teach my daughter to be selfish. Or did I, nor did I teach my daughter to run the other way when I call her name. Now, I love her to death, but the reality is this is part of her natural impulse to serve herself. But if you flip the mirror around, and you take a look at your own life, and honestly stare at yourself, would you not see that you are likewise infected? Or did you intentionally bring impatience into your marriage? Do you intentionally bring selfishness into the workplace? Or deliberately and wantingly choose to have other people's opinion of you have that much influence over how you live and how you think? We may learn the various ways this nature manifests itself in our present time and culture and circumstance. But the nature that fuels it is inherited. It is our natural state. And the Bible says it is the state of all mankind. It is what actually unites us. We are all by nature children of of wrath, of sin, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. God created each one of us in his image and called us to image him perfectly as he himself is perfect. And he gave us the law in order to instruct us on how that is we should live. But it was our sinful nature that rises up and rebels against it. Like my child's natural propensity to disobey. So we saw God and saw his law and by nature rejected him and it. And like a parent, he would have been right and just to leave us in our sin and punish us for our disobedience. A a disobedience that the Bible says is worthy of hell, of eternal separation from God's goodness. But instead, God in his rich love and mercy chose to offer us a cure. Effectively, a heart transplant, a new nature. He sent his son Jesus to live the life he required of us and die that death we deserved. So that on the cross, he could bear the penalty for each of those sins committed by any of us who would turn away from our sin and trust in him by faith. And then three days later, he rises from the dead, defeating sin and death and then offering his righteousness, his nature, as it were, to anyone who would receive it by faith. Even you this morning, if you have not yet trusted in Christ, can turn from your sin, can be saved by faith. But then this is the the already but not yet we talked about last week, isn't it? Already, the moment you trust in Christ, you turn from your sin and trust in him, you are justified, as Paul said. At that moment, declared righteous, freed from sin's condemnation, and yet you are not yet fully righteous. That, we said last week, you await by faith. And so between now and then, the Holy Spirit promises to work in your heart, in the hearts of those who have been justified, in such a way as to produce in you righteousness to wage war against a sinful nature and increasingly, increasingly you conform you to the likeness of Christ. 
You know, many consider Robert E. Lee's surrender on April, in April 1965 as the beginning to the end of the Civil War. But what's fascinating is there were at least seven battles after his surrender. And at least two of those were after the official ending of the war. I think this is much like the Christian life, like sanctification. In many ways, when you were justified, the war was won. And yet, there are these battles left to win. In spite of the war being over the, and the final defeat imminent, the enemy refuses to surrender. The sinful nature refuses to just go down quietly. So by the power of the Holy Spirit, with the knowledge of victory being sure, we go to war against those militia that remain. Trusting him to give us victory over each battle, which is why Paul says in verses 13 to 15 that the freedom we have is not to indulge a sinful nature. That would be aligning ourselves with the enemy. But it's instead freedom to serve through love. It's a freedom to actually fulfill God's law. Christ fulfilled it for us, and then the Spirit fulfills it in us by conforming us to it, making, giving us a new heart and making God's law our delight because it shows us the way of righteousness for those who have been justified. John Stott said it very helpfully. Although we cannot gain acceptance by keeping the law, yet once we have been accepted by faith in Christ, we shall keep the law out of love for him who has accepted us and has given us his spirit to enable us to keep it. A law that Paul very simply summarizes as loving your neighbor as yourself. Not discounting the other half of how Jesus summarized the law, that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. But he points to that as the proof that you do love the Lord your God. Because if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, you will by necessity respond by loving your neighbor as yourself. It is what demonstrates that the spirit is active within us. So how about for you? How about for you this morning? How do you think through this text in your own life? I think Paul offers us both a word of warning and then a word of comfort. He warns those of us who profess to be Christian by asking if there is evidence that the Spirit of God is actually working in you. If, is he producing in you a freedom that hungers and thirsts for righteousness, as Jesus said in Matthew 5? Or does your faith function more as an insurance policy? You know, the kind of card that you put in your pocket and you go on living however you want, knowing that at the end, should something happen, boom, I have an insurance policy. Entrance into heaven. That's my faith. Do the words righteousness, holiness, and uprightness sound more like freedom and the life you desire or like restriction and legalism? 
Is God's word a delight and a lamp unto your feet that you desire to light your path? That would be Paul's warning, his exhortation, his challenge to you this morning. But then his word of comfort. I want us to see more than even that, the victory that is possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. When you are doing laundry for your kids while cooking dinner and children screaming in the background and changing the baby's diaper and everything in that sinful nature starts to boil up inside of you creating in you a sense of bitterness and anger and frustration. You're wanting to complain and grumble when the flesh is stirring in you an envy for others who are not in your same circumstance. It will be the power of the Holy Spirit that enables you to overcome that sinful nature. Paul says that if you live by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of of the sinful nature. That is how we go to war against it and how we have confidence that he has actually given us the ability to overcome it. Or even in times of grief and sorrow, when we lose a spouse or a child or a friend, the Holy Spirit does not change the circumstance. He does not make that circumstance, the reality of that loss, any less worth grieving. But what he does do is he strengthens you so that you are not overcome with anger. And then he comforts you with his love. Friends, if you feel entrapped by any besetting sin, Paul says you were called to be free. Not to surrender. And while he may not give you complete freedom immediately, the war is won. And he will strengthen you to fight against each remaining militia of the enemy until that victory is finally realized. And as a church, I think we need to heed Paul's warning against biting and devouring each other. The very thing that opposes the type of selfless, loving service to one another that Paul says should mark the Christian life. We need to wage war against it by zealously loving each other with service. Look around the room. Who even in this room might you think about now being able to serve over the next three weeks? And then who after... That might you serve for the next few weeks thereafter. Maybe it's serving in children's ministry. I think a couple of weeks ago we heard of the number of needs that are, are there for children's ministry. Or providing meals for the youth group on Wednesday nights. Or maybe it's simply deliberately praying for someone and then inviting them into your home. Hosting them. Showing them hospitality. Imagine if everyone adopted that mentality and the world saw it. As culture clamors around trying to figure out how to create utopia, futilely trying all these different methods and programs, they look over and see this, this light, this beacon on a hill of these people who don't share a lot in common but are loving each other in ways that don't really make sense. They see the power of God's Spirit and what He can do 
would that not draw the nations in ways that no program ever could? We must be dependent on the Spirit of God within us, regularly on our knees and bowing before the Father for strength. So it is clear that our freedom, as Paul says, is not a freedom to sin. It's actually a freedom to serve through love produced by the Holy Spirit. But then Paul turns in the remainder of our text this morning to unpack these two natures that are at war within us. And he begins with our second point, acts of the sinful nature. Point number two, acts of the sinful nature. Now, I was speaking with a friend recently who spent six months going back and forth to the doctor's office, receiving diagnosis and test after diagnosis and test, until finally the doctors were able to identify what was wrong with him. But what struck me about his experience was actually how with each diagnosis, with each test, the doctors did nothing to change his reality. They had no authority to actually change anything with a diagnosis. They did have the expertise to look at his symptoms and based on that authority say, because of what I see, here's what I think is true of you. I think that's what Paul is doing in verses 19 to 21. He's offering more of a a spiritual diagnostic, a book of symptoms that expose a sick heart, one that is still fueled by the sinful nature. But it's really the heart that's in focus. The symptoms serve more as the window that help you see into the heart. And the symptoms Paul lists can really be broken into four categories of sins, beginning with verse 19. The first category, which are sexual sins, which he lists as sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Now, to be clear, sexuality itself is not a sin. In fact, it is a gift. It is God's gift. He created it. When he created Adam and Eve, he gave it to them for them and their enjoyment. Before sin had even entered the world, he commanded them, be fruitful and multiply. So in no way is Paul forbidding the enjoyment of God's gift. He actually wants you to enjoy it, but he wants you to enjoy it to the max. He wants you to enjoy it in the way it was designed to be enjoyed. That is how you'll most enjoy it is when you, you use it in the way the designer designed it. In the construct of marriage the covenant or commitment of marriage. And yet culture has made sexuality utterly individualistic, self-serving, and even self-defining. Taking it outside of God's design, culture has placed on its shoulders the weight it was never intended to bear. And when we take God's gift and use it for purposes it was not intended It not only cheapens it, but it diminishes its enjoyment and defies God as its good author. So Paul lists the first acts of the sinful nature as sins of sexuality outside of God's design. But in a shorter list, he turns in verse 20 to a second category, which are religious sins. Those that include idolatry and witchcraft. 
Effectively, this is the worship of the creation rather than the creator. Or an effort to control the creator or even be him, be God yourself. This is every false religion. That's kind of category number two. And then he finishes verse 20 with his longest category, those that are more like social sins. He includes hatred, discord, and jealousy, which make up more of your social attitude, your sinful attitude toward others. And then fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, which make up more of the consequences of that attitude. And then finally, Paul points to sins of indulgence. What he says is drunkenness, orgies, and the like. A picture of utter intoxication, of having given yourself over to your sin, giving yourself to the gift rather than the giver. It's a surrender. Pause for a moment. Actually think back through that list. Are you tempted toward any of those in your own life? I mean, that's why Paul listed them, so that we could actually do a self-examination, so that we could get out of the realm of conceptual and into real examples with which we can examine ourselves. And if not directly from the list, do you see any things that he says are like these in verse 21? The list isn't comprehensive. He's getting at the heart. I think if you say no to that question, you are like my daughter walking out with lip gloss all over her face. Evidence is all around that the temptation is there. And yet you're blinded to it. Friends, if we have the sinful nature warring inside us, then the temptation exists and we need to be conscious of it so we can fight against it. Now, maybe it's sins of sexual immorality, or if not the way Paul describes it, maybe the way just Jesus does in Matthew 5. That if you have lusted after a woman, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. Or maybe it's the temptation toward immodesty. Maybe that actually exposes what is really an idol of image and what the world defines as beauty rather than how God defines it. How often are we tempted toward jealousy when our peers receive the, the success and the praise that we think we wanted or we deserved? How easy is it to become so consumed by work that we become fueled not by a desire to work unto the Lord, but by a selfish ambition, and to work into ourselves. Paul says that each of these acts of, are of the sinful nature and oppose the work of the Spirit. But then he gives both again a word of warning and then a word of comfort. He warns that those who live like this in verse 21 and 22, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. So no matter how often people say it is loving, to affirm someone in what the Bible calls sin. It cannot be loving 
because it cannot be loving to encourage someone to forfeit their inheritance, to forfeit the kingdom of God. There is nothing loving about that just to avoid offending them. And while scripture does fully support that sin is natural, it never justifies that sin. Rather, it exhorts each of us to be freed from it by the power of the Spirit. But then that is also the word of comfort that Paul offers. That we can be freed from it by the work of the Spirit. The warning is for those who, quote, live like this, meaning they make practice of it. They continue in it unremorsefully and unrepentantly. Paul is not speaking against your temptation to sin or necessarily even an individual sin that you just committed. He's speaking against an unrepent, a characteristic unrepentance of your sin and a desire to keep going back, to hold on to it. But when your conscience or the word of God or someone, a brother and sister from this church confronts you in your sin, and you feel the weight of remorse, of deep sorrow, not over being caught, but because you know it is an offense before God, because you know in doing it you have wrongly imaged him, and you have spurned your Savior's love. When that weight falls on you, and it leads you to repentance and back to Christ in faith, well, that's not the acts of the sinful nature. That's not what Paul is saying. You can take comfort knowing that that is a war against the sinful nature. Christians are still sinners. Only they are repentant sinners. They are sinners who wage war against their sin, which is itself a mark of the Spirit in them. It's a sign of life, and it's a sign of spiritual fruit. And that's what Paul turns to last in our third and final point, The fruit of the Spirit. Point number three, fruit of the Spirit. If you would follow along as I read our last five verses, 22 to 26. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Well, think back to our opening verse this morning. You were called to be free, Paul says, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather... Serve one another in love. That is the freedom that Paul is holding out to us this morning. Freedom to love. Freedom from the acts of the sinful nature and freedom to the character of God. When the Spirit of God dwells within you, he enables you to truly love God and in turn love your neighbor. And he produces in you a joy and peace that even surpass both circumstance and all understanding. And yet sometimes we often allow circumstances in our life to eclipse our view of what is to come. 
I love the story of how Martin Luther's wife, Catherine, addressed him when his circumstances had eclipsed his view. Warren Wearsby documents that during one very difficult period, Luther was carrying many burdens and fighting many battles. Usually jolly and smiling, he was instead depressed and worried. Catherine endured this for days. One day she met him at the door wearing a black mourning dress. Who died? the professor asked. God, said Catherine. You foolish thing, said Luther. Why this foolishness? It is true, she persisted. God must have died, or Dr. Luther would not be so sorrowful. Her therapy worked, and Luther snapped out of his depression. Well, first of all, praise God for godly women who can step into lives like that and convict them of their, their lack of view. But I want to ask, what circumstances threaten your vision? Threaten your love and joy and peace? Paul says there is freedom from the tyranny of circumstances. A freedom that goes beyond them. When you feel anxious about the future or are facing the illness of loved ones. There is freedom. Empowered by the working of the Holy Spirit as he opens your eyes to the joy of realizing you have been adopted by the King. And his love for you as his child is unchanging. And he has declared you righteous and assured you by faith in his son of an inheritance that is guaranteed to come. And if this is true, then it will instill in you a peace about the future. A peace in life, trusting that he will only do that which is for your good both now and as you await that sure reward to come. And as the Spirit works these truths into your heart, Paul says it should overflow in how you both treat others and how you conduct yourself. The Spirit will produce in you a patience and kindness and goodness toward others. And also a conduct of faithfulness and of gentleness, and of self-control. Imagine the difference if everyone you knew thought you were characterized by those things. That is the fruit of the Spirit that is to be coming forth in the lives of Christians. This is how God, through His Spirit, intends to even make the church an attractive witness. But then does that mean that if we are not perfectly bearing such fruit... That the Spirit of God is not in us? No, the Christian life, as we already covered earlier, is one in progress. It is a life of being, actively being sanctified. So if you're a fellow nerd who likes graphs, think of it as time on your x-axis and holiness on your y-axis. And you have an upward trajectory graph. So that the sanctification process, the Christian life, is is a life of peaks and of valleys, and peaks and of valleys, and peaks and of valleys. But what you find is that over the years, as the Spirit gradually works in you, bringing you to that final state of righteousness He's promised when Christ returns or calls you home, there is this upward trajectory of your life. 
increasingly becoming more and more like Jesus, even in light of the kind of peaks and valleys you go through. So friends, don't give up. Don't ever surrender to sin. Don't stop fighting against it. And also as a church, don't judge one another in that fight. Love one another. Come alongside one another and help each other to depend on the Lord for growth. The sanctification is not a quick fix program. It's, it's more like tending to a garden. A garden that you, you feed the plants and you keep out the weeds. You, you feed the plants, which is, is regularly feeding on God's word and prayer, both on Sunday and then in your own time. That, in effect, is your, your fertilizer. But then you protect the plants, the garden, by immediately plucking weeds at first sight. Now, while the existence of a single weed does not necessarily mean the plant is unhealthy or, or is going to die, if left unattended, it multiplies. And as it multiplies, it increasingly begins to kill your garden. Friends, Paul says we must crucify the sinful nature, plucking the weeds, not entertaining them. Actively putting them to death by repenting and turning back to the Savior by faith and asking for growth by the power of the Spirit. And as we meditate on the truth of the gospel, even as we consider God's forgiveness for that one weed, that one sin, the Spirit will so warm our hearts. It will stir in us a love for Him and a desire to be obedient once again. That's why Paul spent most of this entire letter first unpacking the gospel before he ever went in depth on how you should live in response. Because gospel living is always fueled by gospel understanding. Gospel living is always fueled by gospel understanding. So friends, very practically, spend time reading through these lists. Not as a checklist for righteousness, but as a a doctor's self-examination. And then bring others into your life to help you think through that examination, to help you identify both the weeds and the fruit, to challenge and encourage, and then give yourself to tending the garden by saturating in the word and prayer and by asking others to hold you accountable both for crucifying the flesh and for bearing fruit. Always keeping in mind that you depend not on your own strength for progress, but on the power of the Spirit within you. And that, friends, is why keeping in step with the Spirit will not let you become conceited or envious. Every Christian understands that we all together were by nature sinners. And all together, by the same faith and the same Savior, have been clothed with the same righteousness in the same Christ. And now on this side of justification are all being filled with the same spirit who is sanctifying you, working in each one of us and producing his fruit, which is why these are not called the fruit of the Christian. It's the fruit of the spirit working in and through the Christian. It's not about how we muster up strength, but it, but our dependence on the power of the spirit working within us 
and along with us. So then there is no room to boast. Conceit is self-exaltation. It exalts self. Envy exalts others. But understanding the fruit of the Spirit exalts him. When, as Paul says, we become conceited and provoke one another to envy, we are trapped in either a self-focus or an other focus. But when we understand the fruit of the Spirit and it starts bearing his fruit in us, then we become exalters of him. God gets all the praise. And as he unites each of us equally as his children. Does this ring with the sound of freedom? The freedom to truly love your neighbor. The freedom to overcome your sin. And the freedom to bear the fruit of God's spirit. This is the freedom Paul says every Christian was called to. It is not to be set aside or forgotten, but it's to be our joyous pursuit, even as we go off into this very week. And it is in our response to having been declared righteous by faith. May the Lord grant each of us this freedom and manifest it evidently in our lives together. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray for this because we know that unless you do it, it will not happen. All we can produce on our own are acts of the sinful nature, but filled with your spirit, we are able to bear his fruit. Able to fulfill the law, able to love our neighbor and overcome sin. And we pray that you would help us to do this in Jesus name. Amen.